This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and this is Episode 34 of the Recorded Future podcast. There seems to be a good bit of attention aimed at ICS, industrial control systems, lately. These are the systems that monitor and help keep our critical infrastructure running. The electrical grid tends to get the most attention, but ICS includes water, dams, communication systems, pipelines, natural gas, transportation, and other process control systems. As more and more of these systems get connected to the Internet, they can make an attractive target for cyber criminals or state actors who are up to no good. Our guest this week is Robert M. Lee. He's CEO at Dragos, a company dedicated to the security of securing critical systems. Before Dragos, he was in the U.S. Air Force, where he served as a cyber warfare operations officer in the U.S. intelligence community. Stay with us. When we're looking at ICS or industrial control systems, it really is anything that is, one, obviously industrial, so sort of rugged and, and put into these hardened kind of environments. But more importantly, it's about its ability to sense uh, different variables from the environment or take in inputs and then be able to actuate or influence change into the environment. So it could be something as familiar looking as a Windows PC that has a HMI or a human machine interface, a nice little graphical user interface that allows you to send commands to field equipment. Or it could be the actual uh, controller down in the field itself, which is a little rugged uh, box sometimes, a little like industrial um, looking equipment that's connected to sensors and actuators and turbines and things like that. Even inside of industrial control systems, we would, we would include all those little parts and widgets and things as well. So really, it's kind of this giant collection of all things related to the controlling and changing of the environment um, or the physical process itself. So take us through the history of that. How did uh, these systems come to be connected to the Internet? Sure. So control systems have been around forever. I mean, I think some of the first like beginning discussions of control systems, everybody always cites like the water clock and and going back to like Egyptian times and things like the ability for human race to uh, modify their environment around them and detect and, and sort of automate some of that was, was where we started seeing control systems back before DARPA and ARPANET and all that stuff. We started seeing more interconnected communications and control systems. They, were, they weren't obviously networked because we didn't have that, but they were still building control systems and, you know, uh, factory lines and things that were leveraging them. Um, uh, started even having this discussion back with Edison and, and Power really around like the 80s is when you see really the modern control systems start coming into play where we started really interconnecting these things. We have Modbus TCP, one of the, um, one of the original kind of networked uh, protocols, which was just taking the serial information that was communicating between the control systems and wrapping it up in a TCP header. All of that started getting efficiency and to some degree safety and reliability out of the systems in a way that they hadn't necessarily had before. So as networking was brought to control systems, there was sort of a one plus one equals three kind of effect between that where people were grabbing a lot more out of the environments than they had before. It was great. Um, so the, the push on that was, wow, well, the interconnection of one plant is really exciting. 
maybe we can start connecting multiple plants and substations or control centers and things together to start pulling data more effectively and efficiently and making even better decisions. So we started seeing devices getting connected to the internet so that they could be accessed remotely. Um, sort of this next push that we're seeing is, is more of the industrial IoT. Can we connect all the different valves and sensors and actuators and and actually start having better control of our environments. And let's do that across um, global dispersed plants and facilities. And can we make decisions for all these remote sites in a better way? So it's just it, it, the push of technology and interconnected and internet connected devices has been on taking more value out of that uh, control element. And of course, with that comes risk especially if it's connected up to the internet without authentication or without the proper measures like two-form authentication on VPNs. Like that's where, where challenges occur. And so on one hand, there's real risk there. Now, on the other hand, just because you see a PLC connected to Shodan, you know, you search it on the internet, you're like, oh, it's a PLC connected to Shodan. It doesn't mean that you can just access it and everyone's going to die. Like there is, <laughs> there's always that nuance, right? Like just because you can touch one doesn't mean you can kill everybody. Um, but it introduced risks, which is inappropriate. And I think it goes a little bit further. And when we see poorly configured equipment that is internet connected without the appropriate safeguards, then that is usually a tall tale sign that they're also not taking additional and appropriate safeguards inside the network itself um, of what you can't see. So seeing internet connected devices to me isn't so much the, oh my gosh, we're all going to die risk because that thing is connected. It's the, oh my gosh, they're not taking security at that facility correctly, probably at all. If sort of that low hanging fruit is still a challenge for them. Long story short, the, the desire for liability, safety, and effectiveness and efficiency out of the process has introduced connections. Now we have to think about the security controls to put around them to make sure that we do that in a safe and reliable way. And is this a situation where that connectivity sort of predated um, the bad guy's ability and desire to get at those systems? Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's always been jerks in the world that want to do damage to industrial infrastructure. And, and some people come up with really early theories of like attacks on an ICS, which are very much unfounded. And when you like do the discovery, I think the, the like pipeline in Russia comes up all the time back from the 1980s of like the CIA modified logic and stuff and the pipeline and exploded. And actually when you dig into it, like none of the facts actually hold up. doesn't mean that something didn't happen, but whoever reported it at least got everything wrong about it. Um, but so there's, there's early theories, don't get me wrong, but we didn't really start seeing real targeted um, intrusions towards industrial control systems probably until the late 90s, um, maybe, maybe early 90s in more classified settings, who knows. But definitely in the late 90s, we started seeing uh, more stuff. Even the first big campaign um, that probably caught a lot of people's attention was Night Dragon. And, and um, Night Dragon sort of predated APT1, if we remember that big report from Mandiant. Um, but Night Dragon was like McAfee and like Dimitri over there. And um, in there and in the reporting, they even note like, hey, there's a lot of targeting of these weird energy and petrochemical companies too. This is weird. And, and you could tell the authors of the report were very good and smart security people, but they didn't have the visibility or knowledge of the industrial environment to sort of take it further than that. And, and in reality, having talked to a lot of people that were involved in those cases um, on the asset owner level, yeah, there was a lot of stuff going on inside the industrial environment. So the desire to interconnect and take advantage of these systems predates the adversaries um, to some extent. Um, but the adversaries targeting these environments is a 20-plus year concept by now. 
Can you take us through the uh, distinction and, and whether or not it's a distinction without a difference between um, the bad guys accessing these sorts of things and espionage? Yeah, absolutely. So if you're looking to target industrial environments, there are certain things we are worried about and sort of scales of that I mean, in terms of not necessarily the intentions and motivations. But let's just talk about sort of the scale. First scale is like espionage, right? Adversary gets in and steals off intellectual property. And there's a lot of intellectual property actually contained down in the industrial control environment, like how you're making the recipes, the efficiency to which you're achieving, like how is the steel being produced? Where's the heat sensors and heat um, sort of injects into a blast furnace? Like what level is that occurring? Like there's a lot of intellectual property in the production of things um, to be stolen. Um, so, so there's definitely a value of espionage there. The sort of next step up is, of course, damage. And, and then sort of you scale out from there, like wide-scale damage, or is it just disruption, or is it physical damage to equipment, and, and with all varying degrees of difficulty and, and uh, challenges. Belief structure that forms, and I do use that word as in like the belief structure because it's almost religious to people. Um, the belief structure that forms that the American power grid is going to go down is one of those things that drives a lot of the fear. And I'm not saying... I don't, I don't think we should ever sit back and say this can't happen, but it is significantly and exponentially more difficult than people realize, especially since they always oversimplify it. There is no one grid. Um, we have a lot of reliability and redundancy built in. There's multiple portions of the grid. There's major interconnects between it. Uh, and taking down the grid um, is something that I don't even know how you would accomplish. We shouldn't be limited by my imagination, but being someone who at least thinks that he knows something about ICS, I would say it's much more difficult than people realize. There's a real fear, though, uh, an adversary taking down power in D.C. for three hours is totally manageable, totally accomplishable. It probably wouldn't rise to the level of military conflict. Like, it's it's that under-the-bar kind of position where, you know what, maybe Congress wouldn't do anything about it or wouldn't be able to. Um, maybe the president wouldn't be able to authorize anything that really was meaningful. But at the same time, the fear in the populace on a three-hour power outage would be uncontrollable. Um, somebody, foreign power, turned off the lights. You know, that'd be a difficult concept to to grapple with, and it would instantly scale to, and all the grid is going to go down. We're going to die. Like it would change the industry overnight um, in a very, very bad way. Um, so there's a lot of things that can go wrong, um, and there's definitely environments that are not as resilient as others. When we talk about the resiliency of the American power grid, that does not translate to the cookie factory down the road, right? The um, sort of, I, I have three variables, which I tend to look at and pontificate about, if you will, hmm. um, that I think about with, with adversary destruction. The first is complexity of the system, and you can add security into adding to that complexity. But how complex is the system? Is it an isolated cookie factory where I can learn everything about that cookie factory and it's got no interconnects and everything else? Well, that's not a very complex system. Is it an interconnect for the American power grid with a major region where I've got redundant lines and infrastructure and everything else? Well, that's a very complex system. Substation in Baltimore is not the same as a substation in D.C. That adds additional complexity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the next sort of variable is what is the duration of the outage or what is the duration of the disruption that you want to accomplish? Are we talking three hours in D.C.? That's not too bad. Are we talking three hours across the eastern interconnect? That's really difficult. Are we talking about a day in D.C.? Well, that's pretty difficult. Are we talking about a day across the eastern interconnect? Wow, we're talking exponentially more. So that, there's that variable. And then the last one um, is impact itself. And specifically, are we talking disruption? Are we 
Are we talking um, uh, destruction? Like what level are we trying to achieve in that? And, and more so than just scale, or excuse me, one's duration, one's scale. So uh, combining those duration, scale, and, and complexity together um, produces a view that as the complexity of the problem increases for the adversary by the complexity of the system that you have, you have to spend exponential resources to achieve the same level of impact as the impact that you want to achieve. And that really is the same as duration um, as the duration or impact that you want to achieve increases it is an exponential of that exponential to increase the scale. So again, can I take down the cookie factory down the road? I can probably come up with some variables and it's not as difficult. Can I take down the Eastern interconnect for a month? That is that is an exponential of an exponential. It's interesting because I, I think uh, certainly a lot of the popular media re- reporting, you see um, situations of um, equipment being damaged and there not being backups available for equipment. And then so it would be, you know, three months before we'd have power back up and running and people would be starving. Yeah. And so there's some truth to like the problems, we do have problems. I don't think we should ever sort of sit back and be like, we're, we're cool. No, 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 there are serious challenges. Um, and isolated events, these things are very, very true. If you damaged a key turbine and you physically cause it to destroy, do we have a backup of it? No, and you can't just keep backups of turbines because, or really this, we're talking transformers in this case, but regardless, if you can't keep backups of the physical equipment because they're all custom made. It's not like I can have a store of five and put them anywhere in the grid. No, it's a one-for-one relationship with the one that we're trying to replace. Mm-hmm. So backups aren't as scalable or reliable as people realize or, or want to believe. Um, and if it was actually physically destroyed, what would the impact be? Yeah, like three three months before you get another one for sure. I think that's completely realistic. And that scares the hell out of everybody, and probably rightfully so. It's a really bad case. But then you say, okay, well, how many? And uh, So you destroy one of those things. Are we out for power and everyone's starving? Oh, no, we uh, rerouted power. And because the redundant lines, everyone's actually fine. Oh, well, shit. Okay. Um, well, what if you took out two of them? And and that's what always comes next. It's the, well, what if, what if scenarios, which are good to consider. Just because there's a low probability of an event occurring does not mean that we don't assess it, especially if it has a high impact. The impact is high enough. You safeguard it regardless. So there is a high impact scenario of like nine or ten key transformers going out in the American power grid with physically just with physical destruction. And that high impact scenario would take down major portions of the grid for a considerable amount of time. And you need to understand what you're going to do about it. But the complexity of physically destroying multiple pieces of equipment is much more so than people realize, Oh, we could just do a a cycling of power to physically destroy the generators. Cause we saw that in our Aurora video. No, it doesn't quite work that way. The Aurora event is just physics. Sure. You can do it, but from an adversary's ability to do it remotely, there's a lot of complexity that goes into that, especially since the one transformer site, uh, say you're going after nine of these things, each one of them will be different. Each one of the designs of the attack you have to achieve will be different. The operations to put it in place and to learn and do the intelligence ahead of time will be different. So now you're saying instead of doing one adversary operation that's already very complex and very, very difficult against one site, I need to repeat it with nine times um, and all in the same time because I don't need to have a long period of time go by and get caught because if I get caught, I'm screwed. And it's the level that's probably like a wartime scenario of preparation that I'm going to get really dinged in the international community for. So it's just, yeah, I, um, I push back and I say, should we prepare for this? Yes. 
Should we do more security? Absolutely. Should we be freaking out? Not a chance. And it, it is a, is it a probable event? Not at all. Um, but we don't measure probability in oil spills either. Like what is the probability of this pipeline rupturing and having an, an oil spill? It doesn't matter. Like go do your math. That's fine about probability for like insurance. But for the fact that we're going to have to protect against that and safeguard it for environmental reasons and safety reasons, the impact is so significant that we have to do something. It's kind of the same discussion. What part does threat intelligence play in the work that you all do? Yeah, so for for us from a, like Drago's perspective and, and, and doing it from an ICS perspective, I worry about a couple things. One, we don't have a lot of ICS security professionals. So we've got to take the talent we have and scale it as much as possible for the right problems with the right solutions. The other problem I have is we really do not understand our threat landscape. The traditional threat intelligence communities in IT have been going out and collecting information on forums and analyzing intrusions that happen during security operations or incident response um, or firewalls and IDSs and antivirus and things like that sitting inside of IT networks reporting back to big vendors like FireEye and um, Microsoft and Symantec and whoever and giving them insight into intrusions. And from that, they codify those intrusions into knowledge of the adversary, which is threat intelligence. Um, that has never existed in ICS. We don't have internet-connected uh, sensors beaconing back about intrusions that are occurring. We don't have a lot of instant responders going around codifying lessons learned. Um, it's just a different landscape. So we don't know what the threat landscape is, or mostly. And what happens is technology companies and best practices and NIST national guides and whatever, they still need to get produced. So they produce them off of some tribal knowledge as well as IT security best practices copy and pasted in the ICS. And that is entirely inappropriate. So in my view, intelligence and threat intelligence in industrial control systems is probably more important than in any other field that I work around um, because we need to actually understand what the real risk is. Like, okay, um, here's 50 patches that came out for an HMI. Well, actually, 49 of them don't introduce any risk whatsoever, don't make sense for adversary operations, but this one was being leveraged by an activity group targeting SCADA environments. Okay, go fix that one. We don't have time for all 50. Go fix that one. Um, hey, patching doesn't work uh, in the Ukraine attack. Um, it was just them using the equipment against themselves. It wasn't vulnerabilities and exploits. What do you do now? Okay, well, we need to have monitoring. And you know what? Uh, we need to have the ability to cut VPNs um, uh, for remote workers in this scenario because that's how the SCADA hijack uh, played out. Okay, cool. Let's do that. So I, I think more than ever, industrial asset owners and operators and their security teams need to truly understand their threat model to understand what do I care most about? What are my crown jewels? And what are the actual threats out there that could impact them? What are the behaviors that those threats have exhibited? How am I putting compensating controls and response plans and defenses into place to counter those behaviors, not everybody else's threat behaviors, not every other IT security best practice? And, and that then makes the problem manageable. So if we don't have a lot of people, we better guide them correctly. That's where threat intelligence for ICS comes in. Our thanks to Robert M. Lee from Dragos for joining us. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. 
You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Amanda McKeown, executive producer Greg Barrett, the show is produced by Pratt Street Media, with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Thank you.